0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is...
1: Michael J. Shapiro.
0: Welcome, Michael J. Shapiro. It's a long time since we've seen one another, buddy, but it's fantastic to see you.
1: Yes, likewise, Toby.
0: And tell me, what's on your mind these days? What's what's happened? What's going on?
1: <clears throat> well, at the moment, I have a book underway. I'm, I'm calling Negotiating Civic Life. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about how in the process I've moved quite considerably toward a a more materialist phenomenology. So, for example, the chapter that I'm just completing is called The Civic Life of Things, and the subtitle is Hats and Gloves. (laughs) Wonderful. And let me give you um, a couple of examples of the inspiration. In Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, There's a minor official named Oblonsky who's reading the paper early on. And the line goes something like this. He was obliged to have views in the same way that he was obliged to have a hat. (laughs) The other, the other inspiration comes from Samuel Beckett. um, uh, In one of his stories, a father takes a son out and says to him, it's time we bought your hat. And the son goes into this long disquisition as, as, in terms of how this hat seems to have been waiting for him from time immemorial.
0: One of the things that's always interested me is that I think JFK's inauguration was the first one where the president didn't wear a top hat. In the
1: yeah, model. Don DeLillo mentions that in more than one of his novels. So.
0: That must be my source, yeah. yeah. But I'm also thinking about how if we see still photographs of men at baseball games after the war in the forties that every one of them is wearing a hat.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And it's, it's a trilby style hat. It's not a baseball cap or anything like it in the fifties or sixties. They're bareheaded.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. In fact, um, The word Trilby is really has resonance for me because it was on the transom of one of the boats I used to race against. Really? Yeah, that was the title, name of the boat, the Trilby. It took me a long time to figure out what that was because I was a teenager. I had no idea on the uh, nomenclature of hats. But anyway, in my essay, I have a long disquisition on the history of the bowler hat. Mm -hmm. There's a great moment in Martin Scorsese's film version of The Age of Innocence. It cuts away from a garden party, locates itself on Wall Street, and in slow motion, a bunch of men are moving out of their businesses to have lunch, and you see in slow motion bobbing bowler hats.
0: (laughs) Now, Mike, tell me, in terms of hats and gloves, and they are wonderful examples, wonderful examples, the days when a man or a woman would wear gloves to drive a car, Not when they're getting out of a car because it's cold, but to drive a car. Do those transformations, when these things become or perhaps reemerge as necessities of life, keep your head warm, keep your hands warm, having been necessities of conduct before, is that sort of a transformation that interests you?
1: Yeah, in fact, yeah. In the Age of Innocence, there's this wonderful shot by Scorsese. There's a party at an at an upper class mansion, and the camera does a long take of the table where everyone has put their silk gloves before <laughs> they enter. Yeah. And so he's signaling something about the uh, relationship of vestimentary signs, as Barth would put it, uh, to the whole social matrix.
0: Yeah. And. Yeah. You said this is part of a materialist phenomenological turn in your thinking. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah. Um, Another book I have underway, it's actually in press, it's a political theory book, and it's called um, Political Theory, A Textual Odyssey. (laughs) And once I got into the notion of an odyssey, I decided not only to deal with my odyssey, the dynamic of learning in the process of doing theory, but also various texts which treat the Odyssey and adapt it in different ways. One thing led to another. and I read Derek Walcott's two versions, a long poem and a play. That got me interested in the Antilles. And it became Mm -hmm. clear to me that the location of the Antilles, the fact that it's a fragmented landscape and that it's in a fluvial environment, it has a huge influence on the way they write. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so the world basically imposes itself on the compositional structure of Caribbean texts.
0: You know, one of the things that used to be said about Ian Fleming was that his house in Jamaica, Goldeneye, which Mm. purportedly had a magnificent view of the ocean, was something that he had to control in order to write. So he set himself up with his desk facing a wall.
1: Yeah. Actually, that reminds me of Proust. He wrote in his bedroom, and the uh, the environment was a very important part for him, yeah.
0: So, in terms of this political theory odyssey, some of this is about your own personal changes, and some of it yes. it's, is riffing on the classical text. Is that right?
1: Yeah. yeah. One of the things I do in the opening is I quote Foucault's long disquisition on what he calls a learning text, the purpose of which is to tear the self from itself and not to think the same thing that you thought before. But I also try to uh, suggest that. Um, In the process of writing, the compositional structure constantly builds over time. It's not mapped out ahead of time. And so one text leads to another.
0: Well, I can't help, Mike, but ask you to sketch out four people, some of whom will know your work, some of whom won't. What's been your odyssey with political theory?
1: Well, it be—I uh, don't know if you know about my doctoral dissertation, but it was a computer model of voting in the Congress, right? No, can... Now
0: I you have a dark past as a game theorist.
1: Yes, right? right. Yeah, uh, it's actually published as a book, which I hope nobody can ever find again. But. <laughs> It's called representatives and roll calls, but the part that I really enjoyed was when I moved to Norway, on a sabbatical. I did a computer model of the oil production decision process and I interviewed people all over the country, created a cognitive map and processed it. And that was really revelatory for me because Norway is a small country and whoever I interviewed not only knew all the other people I interviewed but knew where their summer huts were.
0: But that's interesting because it means that even at the moment of investment in the quantitative methods, you were doing qualitative work as well.
1: Yeah, well, here's the here's what happened. Um, I went to graduate school hoping to try to understand a phrase from John Stuart Mill called other regarding values. And I thought that cognitive dynamics would teach me something about that. And so some of the original work I did was quantitative approaches to uh, cognitive dynamics. One thing led to another. Um, I began reading language philosophy, and I switched from a cognitive idiom to a discourse idiom, um, got interested in Foucault's work, um, actually visited him in, in Paris uh, for a weekend uh, with a manuscript um, one thing led to another, and I wrote a book uh, on language and political understanding. The next step after that was getting interested in various kinds of media genres, the, the things in which languages are practiced, are packaged. Um, novels, film. I've written three or four books on film, um, poetry, etc. In fact, I'm especially interested in poetry right now because. Um, One of the chapters that I have underway in the book on negotiating civic life is called The Civic Life of Grief. Mm. And one of the things that prompted it was my reading that the American Psychiatric Association has put into their manual um, a new disease called Prolonged Grief Disorder. And... It's obviously part of you know, what Jacques Donzelo calls psychi- psychiatry's imperialism. But apart from that, one of the things that fascinated me was that reading poets like Juan Gelman and Ariel Dorfman, both of whom escaped dirty wars and had family members murdered, um, prolonged grief in their case made was responsible for their productive writing. And so what I'm arguing is prolonged grief is an asset, not a disorder
0: nicely put and the tendency to pathologize things which i suppose you can see in freud but he would recognize as being productive
1: yes
0: yeah. uh, can in itself end up being destructive if it makes people feel bad about mm-hmm. the psychological mm-hmm. trauma that in fact as you say leads to intense productivity yeah
1: what really struck me as as I began looking at a variety of ways that people approach grief was a book on grief by David Sneer. And it's about a photographer who took a picture of uh, a bunch of bodies that had been murdered in a trench in Kirsch in the Ukraine. Um, and the photographer took pictures and they, they built his photographic photographic journalism career on it, but the most fascinating uh, account was of a Soviet soldier named Savinsky, who saw it all, and what he said was, I don't think I could actually capture what this is about in prose, it has to be poetry. Something that resonates directly into the body, so immediately I thought of Francis Bacon's notion of the brutality of fact, and the reason why he always paints the sensation, not just the image and so the poesis in his painting basically is very much like what Savinsky, a soldier who was not into intellectual life particularly, realized right away when he saw this horrible atrocity. Thousands of bodies, they no longer fit in the trench, they were all, all around. And the photograph that the Baltimore took shows a bunch of women grieving over these bodies as they're trying to discover their sons.
0: On the other hand, Poetry can sometimes be a way into expressing these things but not provide a safe way out. I'm thinking right. of people like Paul Celan, yeah. who survived the camps mm-hmm. and wrote about them and wrote about grief and horror, but in the end it was too much for him,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> the after effects, basically, of the trauma of actually not only witnessing something, but turning that witnessing into a variety of productive uh, responses. So,
0: Mike, we're we're talking a week after the death of Henry Kissinger. Yeah. Probably not a name you expected to hear in this conversation. Yeah. But one of the things that in the pay-ends to Kissinger that I've read in the last week or 10 days has been his contribution to political science and specifically international
1: relations. I'm sorry, I missed the, the the person you're talking about. Say that again. Henry Kissinger. Oh Kissinger. Oh yes, right. Yes. Yeah. Uh Christopher Hitchens book on him, I think, has it just has it just right. Yeah, I couldn't. Oh, man. Man, yeah. But In fact, many years many years ago I was the representative of my university's uh to the Atlantic Council. And the the year that I was made the representative, they were going to have Henry Kissinger do the keynote. So I resigned in protest and I said he should be tried for war crimes, not uh, honored with a keynote speech. And their their only response was, please note that we need a replacement for you from your university.
0: (laughs) One shouldn't laugh, but good on you, Mike. That leads me into thinking about Two things. One, the fact that Kissinger's been so celebrated as a political science and international relations academic. But secondly, in your context, to ask you how your turn towards poesis, cinema, literature more generally, and qualitative work has been received within U.S. political science, which is so institutionalist, so game theoretical, and so on in its orientation
1: you know the field is so uh, riddled with fault lines that it's hard to say but one of the things that's difficult for me is to uh, write for ordinary political science journals for example at one point um i wrote something that uh, did an analysis of two films as part of the uh, part of the uh, the narrative and one of the reviewers said the author should justify why he chose those particular films. In other words, empiricists think of films as samples of all possible films. So I said to the editor, it goes without saying that I could have made the argument with other films, so I'm going to let it go without saying. <laughs> and luckily for me, they did, They took it simply because I have a reputation, I guess. But anyway, um, I uh, tend to resist being regarded as an international relations scholar. Because I regard it as a you know, relatively um, non cerebral kind of dimension of, of analysis. Um, but I want to qualify that by saying many young people who do identify are doing terrifically crit- critical work nowadays. But the mainstream is really uninteresting. And so I've said to somebody to call me an IR scholar is to talk, is as is is like saying that Ingmar Bergman is a is a Disney film worker. <laughs>
0: That said, you've had an interest in international politics.
1: Oh, yes. It's
0: fair to say. And, you know, going back at least, it's probably 30 years since I started reading yeah. work. And in those yeah. days, some of it was about international politics, quite direct.
1: Yeah? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the way that I've been interested in international, international politics is a search for voices that operate outside of the uh, dynamics of sovereignties that make people eligible as, as worthy subjects to inquire about. So, one of my books, um, um, "Violent Cartographies," uh, focuses a lot on the indigenous voices that are not not heard um, because they're buried within sovereignty structures, and so. <clears throat> Mapping the world in different ways, finding alternative ways in which to spatialize the nation, the, the nature of subjectivity. Since then, I've, you know, written, well, I did a book on war crimes, for example. Um, uh, one of the, which, uh, one of the chapters is, what does a weapon see? And that's very much related to the way in which I deal, try to uh, create um, instability in the, in the structures of vision and how the world is looked at.
0: I want to get back to Violent Cartographies in a moment, a great book. Could you explain to us a little more this concept of how does a weapon see?
1: Well, I used a bunch of texts to look at it. Um, The way in which, well, to set it up, I looked at the, the notion of the gaze that you get out of Foucault and also the notion of the gaze that you get out of Lacan And Lacan had much more importance in the chapter in this particular case. Um, There's a particular moment in one of his lectures where he describes how, as a young man, he got interested in the gaze. He was on a boat, and a sailor pointed to a sardine can in the water that was flashing, and he said, You see that can? We can see it, but it cannot see us. And then he began to speculate on the trauma that one experiences when the gaze is returned. And so one of the texts that I look at is called Lebanon. It's filmed entirely within an Israeli tank. And they're looking out at these people who are being um, imperiled. And some of them look back directly into their uh, video. And they're totally freaked out by that because before they were just anonymous people. And all of a sudden they realize that the milieu that they're in, it's a life world that they know very little about. And so the return of the gaze is a major part of my chapter on what does a weapon see, what happens when the gaze is returned. The Hurt Locker is another one that that is an interesting text Mm -hmm. because as the soldiers are walking around, one of them says, very, very upset, there's lots of eyes on us.
0: Yeah. Mm. And, of course, one of the things that's interesting about the current conflict in Gaza and Israel is the way in which, on the one hand, we're seeing media workers killed at an incredible rate. Yeah. Some, some Israelis, but mostly Palestinians. On the other hand, the definition of a media worker is changing as more and more people are documenting what's going on.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Via their telephones. It's a tremendous transformation, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it used to be that... Uh, that uh the recording basically was in a relatively few hands and now everybody is a potential reporter, right? Yeah. Um, now,
0: getting back to violent cartographies, as I said, I think it's a very, very important book because I think more and more of us are coming to recognize something that you've pointed out several times in your work, that violence is at the heart of constitutionality, Yeah. Yeah. basically. Could you tell again, people who may not know the book, what the principal arguments are.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the phrases that of the, the critical geographers have picked up from the book is what I call the architecture of enmity. And I have to say it has a lot to do with how people map the world and how they then locate people within it as relative, in terms of their worthiness or unworthiness for moral solicitude. And so... <clears throat> After that book, I've written things on the uh, cartography of ethical perspectives as well. It's how people, well, I'll put it in Heidegger's uh, verb, how people world has a lot to do with what they see in it and the valences they attach to various people. Um, There's a nice book by David LaPujada called Lesser Existences, which does a nice kind of analysis of how that works.
0: Oh, I don't know it. Mm. I shall look for it. And uh, one of the other books of yours from the early 90s was called something like Postmodern Politics.
1: Oh, reading the Postmodern Polity, yes. Sorry,
0: <laughs> Reading the Postmodern Polity. Yes. Which had a big influence on me. Yeah. Uh,
1: and, let, me, let me just mention: it's one of my best sellers, meaning they probably a few hundred. Um, <laughs> I, and I was just reading um, the uh, the data for James Patterson: four hundred and fifty million copies. <laughs> <laughs> did, is, so every did, once in a while, when I'm dealing with an acquisitions editor, I warn them: I'm no James Patterson. <laughs>
0: did he write <laughs> one with Bill Clinton? <laughs> anyway. Yes, but that had a big influence on me when I was writing my PhD. And it's interesting to see the way in which the word postmodern disappeared. Yes. And was replaced by global or globalization. I remember going to the International Sociological Association conference about 20 years ago and looking at the, one of the first probably, electronic books that was just the conference papers listed. Now it's the norm. Sure. But it included the previous years or the previous three or four years. And I looked through and (laughs) the word postmodern had occurred 400 times in 1997 and twice in 2001 (laughs) or whatever, whenever it was. And it was the other way around with globalization. Yeah.
1: Well, I think it never really had that much precision. And um as Jacques Rancier argues, it doesn't really add anything. It's better to just drop that idea. Yeah. But you sold some books with it, Mike. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> at the time, yeah. Um at the time I was in, you know trying to position myself in terms of the form of critique and really what I thought of it not just postmodern, but as more like post hermeneutic. And tell me, I wasn't in search of facilitating understandings. I was interested in destabilizing those that already exist. And so that's not a hermeneutic task. No. And you certainly achieved that with me
0: as one of your Mm. unimagined but actual readers. So in talking about your Norwegian experience, Mike, in talking about some of the other things that you've described, and your turn to phenomenology in a materialist way, biography becomes somewhat relevant.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Now, you didn't grow up there, but you've spent much of your professional life in Hawaii. Yeah. I'm wondering to what extent being in that place has made a difference to you.
1: Well, it certainly did. When <clears throat> I started writing um about Indigenous politics. I began to see, you know, as I said at the beginning of, of one of my books, um, I thought I was simply carrying the the value of social science and political science to Hawaii as I could be carrying it to Rhode Island or any other place. Eventually, I began paying attention to where I was situated, what the various uh, his- histories are, how people feel about them, the the different perspectives on the life world. And I began to become interested in indigenous politics and uh, the colonial experience that uh, still persists in Hawaii. And as a result of working on the book, I actually created in my department an indigenous politics master's specialization. It's now part of one of our major PhD orientations and there are three or four Hawaiian women who are now teaching in that program. It's one of our strongest uh, parts of our program. And so I was involved not only in writing about it, but institution building as a result of finally waking up and paying attention to where I was sitting.
0: (laughs) Can I ask you about indigenous philosophy? Yeah. As it's affected you, as you understand it, or indigenous philosophies?
1: Well... It operates at various levels. One is, and probably the most important, is the ontological. And that is what the world is about and how we are situated in it. Right? Um, one of the books that affected me quite a lot about that is the book on the song lines. Um, Bruce Chatwin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The difference between the way Aborigines have their world and the way Euros had their world. Um, the entirely different cartographies coming out of a very different ontology. The Aboriginals all thought they had a uh, responsibility for carrying the song from one place to another. And what struck me as really interesting about that is an entirely different model of solidarity as opposed to citizen sovereignty, for example.
0: Well, I'm thinking in Hegelian terms, where Hegel more or less says, you only have the right to territory if you destroy it. Yeah, yeah, Because only by destroying it and building something new have you put your will into it. Yeah. And, of course, he also has a very restricted view of what counters semiotic marks. Yeah. Because putting your will into it isn't just building a freeway or a house. It's also constructing particular cultural norms of communication. Yeah. And all of this was inimical to the interests of enslaved and colonized folks.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about that kind of thing of late right now because I'm uh, working on a chapter on the civic life of gender. And what especially interests me is the incredible hostility people have to LGBTQ people. And part of it is because what they represent is uncertainty. And if you think of this phenomenol- phenomenologically, everyone basically is trying to make sense of their world and figuring out how they fit within it. If people begin to destabilize that world, all that energy seems to have been wasted, among other things. It creates a tremendous amount of hostility. Um, and so looking at, uh, yeah, um, one of the best concepts that I've run into to begin to figure this is by George Congolum. He has a chapter on monstrosity. Mm-hmm. And what is great lines is monstrosity disconcerts because it shows that life can be imperfect in certain ways. And so on the one hand you have people's investment in stabilizing what life's about and where they fit within it, and then their reaction to people who destabilize that.
0: In especially in the US context, I guess religion is very profoundly connected to that. And the yeah. power of monotheistic Christianity in particular. Uh, and the
1: way. Yeah, go ahead. As When I lived in the Czech Republic, I was uh, invited to give a keynote lecture on a conference on the phenomenology of religious life. I didn't know a lot about it, I thought, but the more I speculated, the more I had, turned out I had read quite a few things and did have some buried thoughts about it. One thing led to another, and I did a book with Bloomsbury called The Phenomenology of Religious Belief. And it's all about that, what you're talking about. You know. Well, the, take uh, us
0: in. Take us into that. Better that you talk about it than that I do.
1: Okay. Well, one of the things that fascinated me most was reading Heidegger's book on on, on Paul, in which he translates Paul's lecture on uh, on waiting for the second coming as obstinate waiting. Erharen is a German word. And so the uh, the whole notion of obstinate waiting has been stuck with me. And in one of my books, I have a, a, a epilogue on thinking with animals. Mm-hmm. One of the, uh, the examples I use is von Uxkul's notion of the umwelt of the tick. There's one tick, it turns out, that hung out for 30 years waiting for a warm body to go underneath it so that it could land on it and reproduce its thing. And since nothing came along, it waited and waited. That was a great example of what one would call obstinate waiting. <laughs> Very much like the waiting for the second coming. So anyway, by getting into religious life, the various kinds of concepts that are used, the various kinds of temporalities involved in their Um, conjunction or disjunction with other temporalities has taught me a lot about how to think about everything else.
0: I guess one of the problems that a lot of the social sciences and much of academic life has is that they're resolutely secular. Mm. And this can draw us away from understanding a crucial part of people's lives.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm really struck by insights that have never occurred to me. Someone, you know, we go to a museum and one of the least interesting things have been the still lifes. There's a recent essay on still life that indicates how an entire world is captured in this particular table where there's some oysters that have been eaten and some other things. And he traces the... uh, the trajectories for all all over the world that operate within this table. One can do global analysis by looking at that particular still life, he points out.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think trying to track the entire life of the commodity sign yeah. is really crucial, whatever that commodity sign may be. Yeah,
1: it's, it, it, you know, commodities are sublime in that sense. Right? Uh,
0: did you grow up in a religious context, Mike, at all?
1: well I, I had an ordinary Jewish upbringing. I had a bar mitzvah and and so forth, but uh, i 'm certainly an atheist <laughs> right? um, but you grew up in a sort of reform context i'm assuming yeah I did yeah yeah, yeah. so it's cultural Judaism that you right, exactly uh, grew into it. well and yeah, Judaism is primarily merely cultural, but among i'm very still very fascinated by aspects of it and one of the recent books um by Roberto, the late now late Roberto Colosso. I think his last book was called uh, *The Book of All Books*, and it's a reading of the Hebrew Bible. And one of the fascinating things he points out is that the whole notion of sacrifice, which dominates the early chapters, begins to disappear and gets displaced by a people who read, reading and interpretation take over from sacrifice. And so I thought I sort of hit on that as that's part of my legacy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Indeed,
0: it is. Learning and the value of education.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Colossus, a book on Kafka, by the way, is the best book on Kafka I've ever read. Oh, really?
0: Well, I need something like that to help me explain my encounters with the Spanish uh, administration. Mm. So you mentioned that you're working on three books at the moment, Ike.
1: Yes. Jumping um, forward to
0: the present, can you tell us about parts that you haven't already discussed
1: today? I'm sorry, say that once more.
0: Um, so jumping forward to the present, Mike, you mentioned yeah. that you're working on three books right yeah. now. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about them. You've mentioned a little bit already. Uh,
1: sure. well, one of them is already in production. I and my uh, former student, Sam Opondo, from Kenya, who now teaches at Vassar, did a book on, on uh, the aesthetics of precarity about six chapters dealing with, among other things, uh, African young men who are trafficked by soccer, soccer teams and things like that. Um, anyway, all sorts of uh, artistic texts we look into that help us understand the structures of precarity. Uh, the, uh, the book on political theory on uh, Odyssey is, um, under review right now, but the reviewers have come in. I've responded to them enough. I expect a contract very soon. Um, that's the one in which I talk a lot about the Caribbean, but there are other chapters as well. One of which actually is kind of, um, affected by Roberto Colasso because, mm-hmm. um, one of the things he said about Kafka is for Kafka, a room can be as charged as a continent. <laughs> and so I have a chapter on rooms, um, and the geopolitical, among other things, the, the effects of them. Um, one of the one of the books I ran across, which occupies a lot of the chapter, is a, a novel called The Glass Room. It was a a, gla, a glass house in Brno in the uh, in Slovakia, no, what is now Slovakia, m- made for a wealthy Jewish couple who had to leave. After a dozen years because of the, uh, the Anschluss. And, uh, it was taken over, among other things, by a, uh, a Nazi biologist. So it had an interesting history in terms of following things. But anyway, uh, I got interested in rooms and wrote a chapter on that in the book that's about to be in press. Um, the one that I'm have underway is the one I described as the, uh, negotiating civic life. And the concept of negotiation appeals to me because it has two resonances. On the one hand, um, it has to do with um, how people negotiate their everyday world. And on the other hand, it has to do with how to theorize it, how to negotiate what it's all about. So it, it operates at two levels. There's a chapter on, as I mentioned, on the civic life of grief, a chapter on the civic life of things, a chapter on the what I call civic automobility, and the subtitle is Driving White, Driving Black. Mm -hmm. The main text that I ran across that uh, dominates the chapter is a documentary by Duane LeBlanc. It takes place in Los Angeles. And as a viewer, you never leave the backseat of an automobile driven by someone named Booker who returns to L.A., after having been away for a long time, picks up passengers and the car becomes a school because his African-American passengers begin to tell him what his responsibilities are with respect to black civic life.
0: So one of the things that strikes me here, Mike, is that there's a lot of discussion at the moment, as there has been really for decades, about the United States as a deeply polarized country. Yes the idea that people simply do not share things in common. But it seems to me that one thing that might be emerging from your research and theorization is that on an everyday basis, they're sharing many things in common. Mm -hmm. These are not headline items like LGBT rights or indigenous rights or indigenous philosophy, but they're making do making worlds around
1: you yeah actually reminds me of my old friend late friend now john o'neill um a sociologist who among other things wrote a book called making sense together yeah that was his his major orientation in fact yeah Uh, i don't think that it's it's not so much that we're more polarized i think it's the case that people are now willing to talk about it because it's been legitimized I think the degree of polarization was already there. Uh, it's been somewhat exacerbated by the incredible increase in inequality. But structures of resentment have always resonated all over the place. And the question has always been can you, is it legitimate to express your resentment? And the Trump presidency basically allowed lots of, gave permission to a bunch of people to express their hatred of people who are not like them. But the basis of of many religious movements is the upset that not everyone is like them because they want confirmation that they're correct.
0: And where does his master, his highness, the economy fit in Mm. all of this for you, Mike, you've just mentioned growing inequality as Mm. part of the problem in the United States. You've talked about houses and hats and gloves and guns, which all require money in order mm-hmm. to yeah. imagine them, make them, distribute them, buy them, yeah. dispose of them.
1: Yeah. Actually I ta- last time I taught an undergraduate course um well two times ago and now um I had people formally form groups and each one chose a commodity. And so there, one would choose gold, one would choose oil, another would choose rubber. And then I asked them to break that down into someone doing the history of it, someone doing the films that deal with it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Because almost every commodity can tell you something about the entire economy of the world. You know.
0: Beautiful. And how did that turn out? for you well, and
1: for COVID, students covid and it descended on us in the middle of this <laughs> and so <clears throat> the groups unfortunately broke up and the, i got a lot of individual papers in which the idea was but i was hoping for group presentations and having the interaction effect that, you know uh, operate but it was in 2020 spring term and uh, it kind oh, of messed did. up the, the dynamic yeah you know. but well, actually Originally, many years ago, I read, Rob Nixon had a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education called The Hidden Lives of Oil, and it dealt with the way in which once the Red Line Agreement was drawn, the way in which the Bedouins who operated what used to be the oil fields were either murdered or driven off, among other things, and all of the consequences. And I was also affected years ago by reading about a biography of the Rockefellers, Because the Rockefellers began deciding they wanted to sell oil in one place. They realized then to do that, they had to extend the number of places they sold, they sold in. Um, I won't go through all the steps, but pretty soon they decided they they had to rule the whole planet. So they uh, created the Council of Foreign Relations, among other things. And almost every secretary of state was part of their uh, control. Yeah. And so a commodity. Builds and builds and builds, and it creates a whole series of relationships. Mm. So, Michael J. Shapiro, I've got two more questions for you.
0: We've got about 10 minutes left. After I've asked my questions, I'd like to give you the opportunity to add anything that we've not touched on. Does that sound okay?
1: okay? Sure, that's fine.
0: Thanks. So my first question is Marxism, question Mm. mark.
1: Yeah. Well, <clears throat> interesting. You should raise that because I've just gotten back to reading a rereading a lot of Althusser, you know, especially his late work uh, on uh, the empiricism of the act. Yeah, you know? and <clears throat> I think that uh, Marxism is remains one of the most important breakthroughs in how how to, how to do and think through critical work. You know? Right from the very beginning, when uh, in Capital, where Marx talks about um, the way that <clears throat> what seems like a thing is really buried activity, the hieroglyph, right? The hieroglyph is such an important part of almost any kind of critical interpretation. You know? And so I think Marxism remains as powerful as it ever was as an epistemological kind of work. You know? It's too bad that Marxism, like Christianity, has never been tried.
0: (laughs) Well, you're mentioning the hieroglyph feeds perfectly into my last question, which is deconstruction,
1: question mark. Yeah.
0: And it's valued for you or otherwise, as
1: broadly construed. Yeah. Well, I don't tend to use the word deconstruction anymore. Um, I tend to use the to try to break that down into a whole variety of ways to sort of figure out all the layers that are involved in everything that we regard as an accomplishment, a thing. And so rather than deconstruction years ago, I broke it down into the way Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche work, and that is to turn things into processes and then to recover the processes and to look at the the kinds of contingencies that are involved everything that exists could have been otherwise for example and so one of the major things that i that drives my work is 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 uh, looking at encounters that are, which are really critical I've just been recruited, for example, to write something about the 80th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. I wrote something for the same journal, Thesis 11, for the 70th anniversary, and now I'm writing something for the 80th. And this time, I want to go back and look at the various contingencies. And one of them basically is based on my family. My elderly aunt, Lena, who was already in her 20s when my mother was born, got a was a Phi Beta Kappa at Brown University in mathematics, she ended up in New Mexico with a job tracking missiles. And I asked her toward the end of her life because she left that job after a short time and ended up working for the Internal Revenue Service in New York City. I asked her if she had any regrets. She said, yeah, I would have liked to continue doing my math. Um, And I said, well, why did you leave New Mexico? And her line was, New Mexico was no place for a Jewish lady. And so... I have a section in this paper I'm about to write called There, But for the Grace of Sexism and Bigotry. My Aunt Lena might have been yeah. possibly connected to somebody in Japan.
0: Interesting, isn't it, that there's a big debate going on right now about the distribution of the Oppenheimer film in Japan.
1: Yeah, I'm going to be writing about that. Yeah, the fact that it's just been accepted for showing in Japan. Yeah, yeah.
0: And So now I want to hand it over to you, Mike, if I may, and ask whether there's something, and please take as long as you want, that you'd like to add that we haven't touched on. It could be about your vision of the future, what you're doing now, or your past.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm glad is that I'm now an emeritus professor because the way universities are operating is increasingly disturbing, getting rid of so many of the humanities, um, um, focusing on the vocational aspect of things. What what university should be about is creating unease in the institutionalized understandings and practices that go on in the world. It should be a place to speculate, and uh, there are so many forces which are basically allied against that. Here in Hawaii, there are three legislators uh, who are constantly putting pressure on the university to try to try to get it to serve the state better, meaning. Helping students find jobs, yeah, and that's not what it's all about. West Virginia has been an incredible disaster. They're firing over a hundred faculty members because they're getting rid of most of their humanities. And so, so the whole the whole trajectory of higher education is very distressing.
0: You see a threat to liberal education as broadly construed. Yes, it's very definitely. very
1: serious. Yeah. On top of that, there's another layer, and that is trying to get your work published in a way that can be read by people in an affordable way. Um, I did two books with Duke University. The second one won a prize as the best book in literature, film, and the arts for a three-year period. Duke didn't want to take my next book because it hasn't sold enough. Wow. Yeah, for example. It's very hard to get a press now to be willing to – to publish an affordable paperback right away. And when I spoke to one of the acquisitions editors, it used to be when I was first teaching that you could count on 600 to 800 library sales if you were a university press. It's down now between 100 and 200. And so there's not enough support for publication. No.
0: The political economy has basically altered it's been transformed as libraries are much more interested in allocating their relatively scarce resources to databases.
1: And yeah, paid right. yeah.
0: One of the things I am really glad you mentioned a couple of times in our conversation is discomfort
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the desire to seek comfort yeah. that leads people to various kinds of bigotry.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the value educationally of feeling uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, very. Yeah. And there's I want. A great, there's a great line by Blanchot that I constantly cite. The purpose of literature is to destabilize. To I'm sorry. The purpose of literature is to interrupt the slow process we think we're making toward a deeper understanding.
0: Well, Professor Mike Shapiro, thank you so much. Um, I can't tell you the importance that your work has held for me over many decades and continues to do. And I want to extract a promise from you that when these next three projects are out, you'll come back to the pod and talk more about them.
1: I'd be very glad to. It's been a delightful, been a delightful experience talking to you about this. Oh, Toby, thank you so much. Thank you.